Bibles with you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's become increasingly apparent that the root of the many and serious problems in Corinth is pride, which expresses itself mainly in this trust they have in and admiration they have for human wisdom, their own understanding of things. We often forget that we're redeemed people. We've been bought with a price and we are not our own. At least that's what we profess to be, as they certainly did in Corinth. But if we truly believe the Scriptures that we confess to be the only rule of faith and practice, we would do what they say. We would be more consistent in this. We would believe them over ourselves and over our own understanding. And few of the places our arrogance and our ongoing trust in our own wisdom and in our own way of things and our own preferences for how things should operate are more obvious than our flat-out and ongoing refusal to practice church discipline, to purge when it's necessary the evil from among us. God's grace is for repentant people. It's for the spiritually poor, the arrogant who refuse to break under the Word of God, which shows in a lack of repentance more than any other way. They have no claim on God's grace. They should not feel the assurance of the Gospel, but the weight of the law, unless and until they become repentant over their sin. Then may God's grace wash over them in waves. And it might be easy when we think about this, to critique preachers like Paul, who preach this grace and this freedom, but then say something like, he says here, purge the evil person from among you. Well, wait a minute. I thought you were all about grace, Paul. How can you ever judge? And when we ask that, do we realize how quickly we can sound like the world? But nothing marks a person as evil more than the refusal to repent in the face of God's truth. And that's where the text turns tonight. This is where it comes out. How exactly are these folks so arrogant? Where does it show? Where is it demonstrated? There's nothing more prideful and unchristian than refusing to repent of our sin. We are commanded as the church to purge the church of those who are too proud to repent of their sinfulness or they will kill the church. So let's pray. Our Father, I ask for Your grace as we walk into this heavy text tonight. God, please help me to preach Your Word and the power of Your Holy Spirit with Your leadership and guidance and control of me and my mouth. Lord God, I pray that You would soften every heart in this room, every heart, Father, to hear Your Word, to accept Your Word. And may we as Your church do it, Father, when necessary. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So if you can, imagine that a man in your church is in an incestuous sexual relationship with his stepmother. That's what's going on. He's a fairly well-known person apparently in the congregation and has always professed to be a believer. Everybody in the church knows about it. The couple has even moved in together. That's the connotation here. And The word is now getting out more widely. Members of your church have been 
have, have mentioned it to friends of theirs in other churches. Probably people are talking, maybe in other communities. Even people in your city who are not Christians are raising their eyebrows at this news. How do you respond as a church? The Corinthians' response is to be proud of it in verse 2. We don't really know why, but people of status usually get a free pass in many societies and tragically in many churches. They didn't want to address this man's sin, probably because of who he was in the church. One commentator writes that in an honor-shame culture and in a city where sexual promiscuity was so widespread that the comic playwright Aristophanes had coined the verb Corinthiazo or to Corinthianize, which meant to fornicate, in a society like that, powerful patrons must have been nearly untouchable. And not much has changed, right? If you have enough money or enough pull or clout or the right name, you can get away with all kinds of things in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul's response to all this is to be absolutely outraged by it. He is appalled by the sin itself, explaining that this kind of thing isn't tolerated even among pagans in verse 1. That is, even non-Christians think this is gross and weird. But even more seriously, we're meant to see in the passage, Paul is outraged by the response of the church and spends most of his time addressing their pride rather than this incest issue. And the church as a community rather than just this incestuous couple. We might find that surprising. We normally probably are more worried about the individual than the whole. By the egregious sin rather than the widespread acceptance or even celebration of it. We, we decry society for its willingness to accept sin and then we do it in the church. Paul's chief concern is for the integrity of the church as a whole in Corinth. That's the main thing he's addressing here. His response, which he'll elaborate in the rest of the chapter, is summarized in verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so begins one of the most important passages in the whole New Testament on this issue of church discipline. So let me talk about that for just a, a moment here. Church discipline. Statistics, um, and even I guess my own experience have taught me that all too often we don't practice this in the church. We're completely unfamiliar with it. it it's, it's very strange to us. We approach church discipline, if we think about it at all, with a little bit of hesitation or a lot of it, often precisely because we, we've not been obedient to Jesus in it. And so all this time passes and we've never done it. And then we don't know how to think about it. We don't really know how to do it or even what it is for that matter. It's uncomfortable. It is hard. It's unpleasant. And if you fall out of practice with something like that, Churches are just ran by mob rule. It's just simply the majority rules. And in that context, family names, uh, those that give the most, those who have been here the longest, those that have more influence, or those things have far more influence over our practices, our actual practices as a church, than the Scriptures actually do. And these things have lulled us into inaction, unwillingness, and even ignorance with this practice. But Scripture is very clear on this. It's too clear for us to be so unfamiliar with it. Turn back, if you would, if you want to, to Matthew 18. And I'll read verses 15 through 22. This is our Lord Jesus speaking. Matthew 18, verse 15. And because we have Christ saying this, what we 
I think, can reasonably imply about Corinth is that this process in some sense has either taken place or been completely ignored. And that's where Paul is with it. But let's listen to Jesus in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's the first warning. Right? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell all of it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, you get three warnings. Repent, repent, repent. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, isn't it interesting that we take that passage to comfort ourselves when church attendance is low? Right? Hey, when two or three are gathered, the Lord says we'll be in the midst of them. Do you know the context of that verse? That means when you endeavor to practice church discipline and you follow this process and you toss someone out, of the fellowship because they won't repent, Jesus is right there with you. Right there with the witnesses. Standing behind them. Jesus lays out a clear process for church discipline. It's, it's, it's right here. This, this, this is the practice laid out clearly for us by our Lord Jesus. Now, that begs the question, why would we not do this when we need to do it? How can churches go on for decades and never do this? What kind of damage has been and is currently being done to our church, to any church? Because we refuse to submit to Jesus in this matter. Because what we allow is what will continue, right? Pick it up in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3. For, though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So, remember, just because Paul addresses mainly the church's pride here, it's not that he's trivializing the immorality of this man. Though physically absent, Paul says, I'm with you in spirit. And it's clear that Paul already knows the details. He's already pronounced judgment on this man. He needs to be removed from the church. And the fact that he refers to the one who did this implies that although that man is a part of the church, the stepmother stepmother most likely is not. But Paul wants their verdict on this incest to match his own. He wants the church to express publicly what he is writing to them Personally, look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul writes that the sin is grievous. This is disgusting. It's immoral. It's evil. That they mourn for it. That they have nothing to do with it. And that consequently, they'll remove the offending man from the church. He's unrepentant. He won't face his sin. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The phrase he uses is vivid. It's a striking one. Deliver this man to Satan. 
do we realize the church is literally commanded to do this in some cases? Now, it sounds terrifying, and it is in many ways. It sounds harsh. It is. But Paul's not thinking of, you know, dark magic here or, you know, the church getting together and casting a spell on the man or something, let alone any of the horror movie things we see that might follow. Rather, like the Old Testament, Paul is talking in terms of sacred space where God's people are in which sin is removed from the place where God has chosen to live. He does that all through the Scripture. He removes it from where He's chosen to live. Eden, the tabernacle, the temple, the church now. And cast out into the place where Satan still holds sway. Exile, the wilderness, the land outside the camp, the world. You you turn that person over to the realm of Satan so that they'll come to their senses and repent. As such, deliver this man to Satan is simply another way of saying, remove him from among you, in verse 2. Or purge the evil person from among you, in verse 13. There are two goals to that process. The first part is obvious in verse 5. For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, excluding someone from the fellowship of the church may seem harsh, but its goal, the reason you would ever do such a thing, is because... They're refusing to repent. They're refusing to come to their senses. You do this, the goal is that their flesh, their sinful nature, their illicit desires, their rebellion and immorality might be destroyed if you do this. And that they might reach a point of repentance and be saved. Because if they're turned over to Satan for unrepentance, and that unrepentance persists, beloved, Christians repent. Eventually. Eventually. Those that are not Christians will not repent. Now, this isn't automatic. That's what's so somber about it. It is not as if the act of removing someone from the church will save them all by itself. But that outcome is what Paul hopes for in the case of this man. It's what happens in either this case or, or uh, more likely another case of the same type of thing. And, and um, Actually, let me back up a little bit here. That's the outcome that Paul hopes for in the case of this man, by turning his flesh over to Satan for its destruction. Destroy the flesh, this unrepentantness, uh, you know, get it out of him. It's also what he hoped for in 1 Timothy 1.20, which is the only other place where he talks about a similar action. He talks about handing uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That That's the terminology. Paul's other goal for this process is hinted at by the fact that he doesn't talk about destroying his flesh, the man that did it. Notice he doesn't say that. Or his spirit. He talks about destroying the flesh and saving the spirit. I think Paul is talking mainly about the church here. The church needs to do this. It's corrupted. It's proud. It's unrepentant. The flesh is reigning in the Corinthian church. The expulsion of this man is not only aimed at destroying what is fleshly in him, of course, but also at destroying what is fleshly within the Corinthian church. And saving that which is spiritual among them. They're hurting it right now. It's like a tumor damages a whole body. Leaving unrepentant people unchecked will eat away at a church's purity and power and effectiveness. It will eat away at it. What is spiritual about us? Again, those that struggle with sin are not being terrified here. 
Paul is not threatening the struggle with sin and believers and the seeking forgiveness through repentance and all the, those, that's not who Paul is talking about removing from the church. It's those who are arrogant, those who are unrepentant in their sin, like this man is at this time. And this fits Paul's concern throughout the whole chapter, as we'll see in the next section. This, this man's sin has the potential to destroy not just him, but the entire congregation. One of the things that makes Paul such a great thinker, such a wise pastor and apostle, is that he always sees the big picture. He's, when, when challenging sin, it's very easy to zoom in on the specifics of the behavior. And it's surprisingly difficult for us often to zoom out and see the whole spiritual overarching issue of letting something like this continue. This ability to zoom out and see the big picture is critical in our generation when so many people, like the Corinthians, they're challenging the biblical teaching on sex and sexuality. Think about it. Which which passages of Scripture would we appeal to today to challenge a church or Christians allowing incest among its members? How would we go about that? Maybe we zoom in on a specific instruction like do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father from Leviticus 18.8 and leave it at that. Paul zooms out. What's the bigger issue here than just that you're doing this disgusting, sinful thing? What's the bigger issue? Paul doesn't start with Leviticus. Paul starts with Exodus. Pick it up in verse 6. You're boasting. That's what they're doing by not putting this man in check. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul begins with the gospel rather than with the law. He heads for the defining event of the Old Testament Scriptures, the escape from Egypt by means of the Passover. And he uses it to show why the church must not be compromised and defiled by unrepented immorality in its midst. I say unrepented because it's important to remember that the problem here is not just the sin, but the fact that everyone has responded to it with pride rather than grief. Pride doesn't always look like, you know, arrogant bravado. Sometimes it looks like allowing something to continue when God has said, get that out of you. If this man, after having sex with his stepmother, was to repent of it and change his ways, Paul would be commending him rather than expelling him and urging the church to welcome him back. That's exactly what happens in a different situation in 2 Corinthians 2, 5-11. through But on the night that they escaped from Egypt, remember, Paul explains Israel ate unleavened bread. It was free from the yeast that otherwise spreads throughout the dough and affects the whole loaf, what he's talking about in verse 6. So at the very beginning of their journey to freedom, God gave Israel a meal to teach them that they're to be distinct from the world around them and free from things that might otherwise infect God's holy people and then spread throughout the whole nation. The same is true of you and the church, says Paul. The exact same thing is true. Now, since most of us don't think of yeast as a pollutant, it isn't really that to us, and actually enjoy bread with yeast in it, maybe we get a better sense of Paul's picture. We talk about, you know, a little mold spreads throughout the whole cheese or something. Tolerating the mold in that block of cheese. 
the yeast, it jeopardizes the entire block of cheese, the whole batch. The only way to save the cheese is to get rid of the mold. And that, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, is what you must do with this man. You are a Passover people, he says. You are called to be pure and undefiled and unleavened and holy. And in fact, that's what you actually are. Why aren't you acting like it? Christ himself has been sacrificed for them as a Passover lamb, pure and without blemish in verse 7. So when they celebrate this festival, which I believe in the context of 1 Corinthians is the Lord's Supper, they must not be leavened with malice or evil, but be pure and unleavened with sincerity and truth in verse 8. Otherwise, the sin of this man or their acceptance of it will spread throughout the whole church like yeast through a loaf or like mold through a cheese, right? And they will be destroyed from the inside out. The pastor said I was like mold. Then repent. You don't want to be called mold. Don't be mold. Repent. Churches go on for years, beloved, decades, unchecked, filled with unrepentant, divisive people who leaven the whole lump, taking the Lord's Supper like all is well, over and over and over and over again, despite the warnings that are going to come about that in 1 Corinthians 11. That's totally ignored. They might serve on committees and boards in places of influence and leadership and the church. Knowing stuff is going on won't do anything about it for years and years and years. And then we have the audacity to wonder why we can't grow sometimes or why we lose our effectiveness. Beloved, because we're sick. Our growth is stunted. We are impure. We are arrogant. We tolerate sin like it's nothing. And Christ is our Passover lamb. Why would we think God is going to bless a church like that? Why do we struggle? Like We ask, why does our church seem, which I don't know if this is the question we're asking. I'm talking in general about churches. Why do we struggle so much? Why is everything so hard? Could it be this? Could it be God saying, I told you you had a tumor and you won't cut it out? That's when these are the times we find out if a church is serious about being a church. A church, not a, you know, a camaraderie of friends that are all Christian. A church. It's times like this when you find out if we're serious about that. Are we willing to do the things God actually commands us to do? Or will it just go on as it pleases to protect the status quo? Jesus will judge such a church. That's, that's revelation. He'll judge such a church. I wonder if he already has all over our land. Because the lampstands are going out all over the place. And this is such an uncommon practice. We think it's weird when we hear about it or see it. And it's mean or something. Oh, beloved, it's, it's, it's in the book. We, we don't do it. We don't do it. And, and we think that all the problems in, in the American church are over the musical style or something. It's, it's, it's crazy. We, we're, we're staying sick on purpose and wondering why we aren't getting better. In many cases, we get sick and die because we won't purge the church of pride. Unrepentance is pride. Acceptance of it is pride. 
Now here we are, five chapters into Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And in verse 9, we suddenly discover this is actually his second. Pick it up in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. And we would think, well, yeah, if it's, you know, something as bad as incest, he goes on. Or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler. I didn't think gossip was that big of a deal. Drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And that's all we judge. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. From among you. That's your job. That's where you judge. We no longer have that previous letter Paul refers to here. In fact, the only thing we know about what he put in it is what he says right here. Paul had told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. And apparently the church had misunderstood this clearly or maybe pretended they misunderstood it to mean that Paul was telling them to avoid all contact with sexually immoral people in the world. We actually don't do that. We actually don't do that. We do the opposite of that. As Paul admits, it would be impossible to do that anyway. Cities and even towns are chock full of people who are sexually immoral, live sexually immoral lives that are utterly incompatible with following Jesus. And avoiding them would mean leaving the world altogether in verse 10. But if we, that's where Jesus spent most of his time. And remember, he was labeled a one of them because that's who he was with. So that's not what it means. We're, we're, we're not called to separate from those people and then just lodge, you know, lob grenades of judgment at them for how evil they are. We don't do that with those outside. That's not our concern. That's God's concern. We proclaim the gospel to them. We love and serve them, neighbors and enemies alike. But in the church where everybody claims to be a Christian, where everybody claims to be repentant, we don't put up with it. That's strong, isn't it? We're not called to be separate from the world in that way. Beloved, no. We don't take part in what they do, but we don't shun them. What Paul meant was that they should not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality. And then again, listen to this. Or greed. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler in verse 11. Not even to eat with such a one. Interacting with sexually immoral people in the world is inevitable. If people don't follow Jesus, then it's no surprise they don't live by His rules. That shouldn't shock us so much. But it isn't our business to judge them in verse 12. Their sin is obvious. What do they need our judgment for? That's all Christians seem to do is judge those outside the church for being so vile. And who knows what we're putting up within our own midst. How do we get that so backwards? How do we get that so backwards? In the church, it's to be different. Here, we do judge when a person is unrepentant. 
not when they're struggling with sin, when they're unrepentant. That is more unchristian than anything else. Unrepentant? 1 Peter 4.17 Judgment is to begin at the house of God. We bear the name of brother or sister. And if we call ourselves brothers and sisters, then we should be held to account on that basis as brothers and sisters in Christ. Interestingly, the word Paul uses here for bears the name of brother or sister, onomazomenos, that has the sense of so-called brother or sister. Which may mean that he thinks this incestuous man is not actually a believer. And that's what you would think of somebody who can persist in sin without repentance. Are you a believer or not? That's actually the litmus test. Not does a person struggle with sin. Do they struggle? Is there repentance? That's really the issue. And it would seem he's not a believer because he's proud of his sin. He won't repent of it. That's how unbelievers act when they're confronted with sin. Not believers. For a believer to just look in the face of their sin and say, I didn't do anything. I don't care. It's such a dangerous place to be. The church's job when you do that is to turn you over to Satan. Turn you over to Satan. So that that flesh that's ruling you would be destroyed and you would come back to your senses spiritually and repent. The man is acting, however, like he is a believer. That's what he's saying about himself. So he needs to be removed from the church. Treat him like he is what he claims to be. If he's not claiming to be a believer and he's sinning, you don't prohibit somebody from visiting your church or coming to your church or attending your church if they're sinning and they don't claim to be a Christian. But if a person goes to church for a hundred years and is sinning and won't repent of it, you get them out. So far in this chapter, Paul has described the removal of this man in a number of different ways. He's referred to putting him out of the fellowship, handing him over to Satan, getting rid of the old yeast, not associating with immoral so-called believers. Now in the final few sentences of this chapter, he adds three more. Three more. He talks about the need to judge those inside the church in verse 12, as opposed to those outside it, which is an important challenge to all of us, especially, especially again, since most of us instinctively do the opposite condemning the world for its ungodly ways while giving our own sin a free pass. And notice that God says He will take care of judging the world for those things. Not us. We don't do that. Paul also urges them to purge the evil person from among you in verse 13, which is a direct quotation of Deuteronomy 13, 5. And elsewhere in the Old Testament. And shows how clearly, closely, by the way, he associates the church with ancient Israel. And in the strongest sense, at least for many people today, he tells them not even to eat with such a one. Back in verse 11. It's a challenging text, beloved. Especially when we consider that Paul is not just talking about sins that are generally rejected in our culture, like incest, or it used to be. My goodness. Who knows now? But also sins that are generally accepted in our culture, like sexual immorality and drunkenness but not to mention sins that are often accepted in the church itself, like greed and slander or reviling. Don't even eat with such people. Does he mean that you, you shun people if they're guilty of unrepentant sin, 
completely. So you avoid their houses. You see them on the street. You don't say hi. Probably not. If, if, if we consider the rest of the chapter and the references to the gathered assembly in verse 4, that's what he's talking about removing them from. The unleavened bread of the Passover in verse 7 and the feast we celebrate in verse 8, it's more likely that Paul is talking about excommunication. That is the act of excluding people from having the Lord suffer with us. It's not that someone can't attend the church per se. It's that they're not permitted to take the Lord's Supper. That's a distinctly Christian thing. We are not permitting them to pretend they are a Christian when they won't repent of their sin. We are excommunicating them from the table. We won't even eat the Lord's Supper with them. Let's us know how seriously God takes the Lord's Supper. I've not done well enough with that as a pastor. That's my sin. One of them. As a pastor. As we'll see later on in chapters 10 and 11, sharing the Lord's Supper carries a very deep meaning for all who participate in it. And if it's done carelessly, causes all sorts of damage to the church. And you just act like that text isn't even there. But again, we apparently, maybe, maybe it's that we don't care. And just keep right on letting the unrepentant do what they want and eat the Lord's Supper like they're just one of the gang. And then again, we wonder, what's, what's wrong with us? Why, why do we struggle so much? Why is there so much sickness and death and all this? And it's just, beloved, what if we listened to the Word? What if we took God seriously? By commanding the Corinthians not to eat with this man, Paul is seeking to protect them and maybe even that man from abusing the Lord's Supper and allowing sin to defile the Lord's table. Practically, that means that all of us, not just the pastors or the paid staff, have a responsibility to challenge sin in one another when we see it along the lines that Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. What a chapter. Now, we could mistakenly come to the conclusion that the root issue here is how gross and obvious of a sin incest is. And as a result, think that only Sins like that, something so obvious and bad and gross would be the only reason we'd ever remove a person from the church. You know, something like, like this. Yeah, if it's that vile or gross and obvious, then you would remove someone from the membership. But that's not what the text is saying. The root issue here is the pride of unrepentance, both in the unrepentant person and the church's unwillingness to deal with it. The text addresses the pride of the church a lot more than even the incest. And for what it's worth, look back again at verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So you would be well within your biblical rights to substitute incest with something like greed or reviling, which is gossip and slander. And the need to remove an unrepentant person for one of those sins is in the text just as urgent and severe in the Lord's eyes as incest. Do we believe God takes such sins seriously? I don't think we do. I've heard it said to me. It's not gossip if it's true. Really? Really? Wow. 
we practice such things as though they're not a big deal at all. Incest is its own mess. I can't imagine. Never had to deal with that. Thank God. As a pastor. You take something like reviling, gossip. After a while, that becomes something much more sinister than just saying things about people. It begins to divide and sow discord. And Proverbs 6, 18 and 19 says that the Lord literally hates the person who sows discord. Wow. Titus 3, 10 and 11 read, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When a divisive person reviles and gossips and won't repent, the Bible is saying they are condemning themselves. Do we take sin that seriously? That's why I always laugh sometimes on the inside when people are like, there's too much grace, there's too much grace. Who takes sin seriously? Do we take gossip that seriously? Sowing discord that seriously? Sowing discord, you're not having a parade with a banner going through the church talking about how bad somebody is. It's just this. It's, it's, it's the way you play the game of talking. You say it to this person, but not to that person. So that that way it trickles down. And now you've got this whole mess of gossip and who said what and we don't have any witnesses and it just, it's a mess. That's discord. And that's on the list. Reviling. Do we know that that's how God looks at people who store up division? How do they do that? Slander, gossip, reviling. In 1 Corinthians 5. Notice how closely the text in Titus that I just said mirrors Matthew 18. That that's always the process. You warn a person once, the first time, one to one. You need to repent of this. It's a warning. Because if you don't, it goes to the next step. Where you take two or three, and now they know. And if you won't repent then, then you take them to the church. And if they still refuse to repent and play the game, you remove them. And the church hears all of it. Why are we doing this? Because they've done this. So you mercifully warn a person, don't let it get to that point. End it now and it's over. The implication and warning is that at one of those you would repent. Just repent. Now I will say this, very sadly, about church discipline and the process of warnings where you're calling a person to repentance. Full disclosure, beloved, I've never seen it work. Not one time. Not one time. I've never seen it achieve the desired goal of that person's restoration. I've never seen it. I've only ever seen the opposite. People double down. They they don't want to repent. It's not comfortable to be faced with a sin. For any of us, pastor or not, it's not fun. But people usually double down. Pride usually wins when we get to this point. Unrepentance is a very dangerous place to be, beloved. It's a very dangerous place to be. Self-condemnation is just over that cliff.
And that's, that's really the issue when you consider all the biblical evidence. It's, it's the only sin specifically that you actually remove a person from a church for is unrepentance. At the end of the day, that's what is happening. We're not removing you because you have a sin problem. We're removing you because you won't repent. That, that's fundamentally unchristian and prideful. The scripture reveals that nothing says I'm not a Christian more than refusing to repent of your sin when you're confronted with it. Especially through this process where if you would just hear the word of God and repent, it would stop. We see what Paul is saying here. The church isn't, it doesn't need to look like a bunch of goody two-shoes who never mess up. It's supposed to look like a bunch of sinners that God has made holy by His grace that are dependent on Him and need Him. And we don't have any delusions of grandeur about our own goodness. In fact, when we sin, we repent. That's what makes us church more than anything else. We face our sin. And we repent of it. We know we're called to holiness, but we also know we aren't there yet. And so we need to be in a constant state of repentance and stay the course of our faith. So in the church, we repent of our sin and stay the course of our faith. We don't let it slide. We don't pretend it isn't serious. According to the text, we aren't made unholy by our ongoing struggles with sin as a church. That's not what makes us unholy and a leavened lump. It's not that. What makes a church unholy? What leavens the whole lump? Unrepentance, pride about sin. Nothing is more Christian in this case than repentance. And nothing makes us look more unchristian than unrepentance. You see how the enemy has deceived us into thinking that what really makes us look godly was shunning all those sins the world is really good at doing. And we should shun those sins, no question. But do you see what the enemy did? He made us think that's what makes us holy. While excusing these sins and others among ourselves in the name of being friendly or not rocking the boat. And I struggle with this as a pastor. I've done this. I hate it. This is a command to obey or the church is disobedient. There's no... I wish there was an out. Because I'll tell you, one such case of this almost destroyed me and my family. You hear me talk about how difficult it was in California. Maybe you've heard me talk about that before. Most of the people in that church were wonderful saints. But we had a situation we had to address. We tried for over a year to to bring this man to his senses. Warning after warning after warning. We didn't want to remove him. He was the pastor of one of our other ministries. He was... He had had an extramarital affair. Not given names or any details or anything like that, of course. Had other children. Fudged his paycheck so that he didn't have to pay child support. That's wicked. And he was a horrible gossip about all the other elders and preached false doctrine. Like you could, you know, lose your salvation and all these things, even though our church had agreed upon its doctrine. But he had a venue for that. And so there were different barriers there. And so we wanted to be as merciful and as kind as we could be. 
And we kept, we tried and we tried and we tried and we would not repent until everything came to a head. And we had all the evidence. We had everything there and we removed him. And I became the biggest villain in the church because I was mean to him. All the witnesses were like, no, I'm not going public. I'm not saying anything that I said publicly, right? So we were right. And it was a disaster. So don't hear tonight, oh, I love to do, I want to do this every chance I get. I don't ever, ever want to do that again. Ever. But looking back on it, listen, of course, you know, it's self-serving to say it, but whose fault really was that? It was the one who wouldn't repent. It would have ended. It would have stopped. We would have helped him. We, we, beloved, sometimes we, we, we aren't serious about scripture. We, we, we say that we are, but we aren't. And I, look, I don't always know what to do, what the timing is. Sometimes I don't know whether to press the issue when there's a problem or not. I don't know. It's not like it's always so cut and dry, but the Bible commands this. And if we, we, if we've never done it, is it because there's never been a need or is it because we just don't want to? Like I was just saying about myself, I don't want to. I don't like it. So let us be repentant people so that we don't have to worry about it. It's okay that you're a sinner. I am too. Just repent. Okay? That's it. That ends it. That stops it. That brings harmony to a church. When you sin, admit it. Repent. We shouldn't be shocked that each other are sinners. We shouldn't be shocked by that. Purge the evil person from among you. What's evil? It's not repenting in this context. It's not just incest and drunkenness, which are horrible sins. And adultery. It's, it's also greed and swindling and reviling. It's, it's not because we're supposed to look perfect. That's not why we're, we have church discipline. It's because Christ came to save sinners and turns them to Him in repentance through faith. That's what's Christian in this world. Distinctively Christian. If we ever get beyond that, we'll lose our identity as a church that God sees and honors and multiplies. And when we have a Savior tonight, because we have one, when we have a Savior who stands with arms open wide, to receive all who call upon Him, no matter how much into their own mess they are. If you come to Him, He forgives you. It's over. When we have a Savior who stands with arms open wide to receive all who call upon Him, to never turn away those who come to Him, to never break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick, why would we reject Him? Why would we reject Him? As a church or as individuals, He forgives sins. Let us be a repentant, united, holy people. That's what the church is called and created to be. Not by being sinless, but by being honest. 
about God's verdict on us as both judge for us in Christ and as Savior for us in Christ.